0: From KPMG, this is Global Perspectives with Hala Mohidin.
1: Hello and welcome to Global Perspectives, the podcast series from KPMG focused on the big international issues and inspiring leaders helping to shape a more sustainable world where CEOs and their companies can flourish. David Cole and Richard Bussolato were your classic investment managers. Both had decades of experience and worked successfully for some of the world's biggest financial institutions and hedge funds. But the duo eventually decided to take a different path, radically turning their resumes into resources. Since co-founding Rethinking Choices, David and Richard now work with businesses and communities to devise sustainability strategies for a world where resources are limited. They recently jointly penned a book called The Unsustainable Truth, which aims to shine a light on some of the damage the financial services world can do to the planet if it doesn't focus more on sustainable issues. David and Richard, thank you both. For joining us on Global Perspectives. Thank you,
0: Hala. It's a pleasure and thank you for inviting us. Indeed. Thank you very much for having us here.
1: Now, your story is interesting, especially given that both of you have decided to take a radically different career path together. What motivated that change and which of you took the first step? <laughs>
0: well, we, we took it together. So that that's very clearly the case. I mean, we we actually end up sharing a lot of Uh, experiences. Um, Actually, going all the way back, I I started work for those who kind of have decades in there under the belt in financial services, I started work in finance with a hedge fund called LTCM, which blew up the world, basically, Um, involved the Fed locking up 14 major banks in a room until they sorted it out. And Richard on the other side, so I was on the side that was wondering, oh my god, what's going to happen? And Richard was on the other side saying, this is my best year I'm ever going to have in my life. (laughs) So we we share many, many experiences together. Um, But I think with regards to the path here, it, it all started because we were charged with coming up with a sustainability policy for the fund we were working on. And we ended up realizing that investments fundamentally is about using up resources. And sustainability, if it's an issue at all, is an issue because there are not enough resources. So the two of them can't be squared.
1: And Richard, what's your perspective on this? What prompted you to make this radically different career choice? It's,
0: I wouldn't call it necessarily
2: radically different. It's more an extension of what you've been doing. Because unlike David, I'm very much a one-trick pony. Um, I came straight out of university and I've only ever done one thing in my life, which is manage portfolio risk I started as a portfolio manager when I was 22 and ultimately all you do and everything you think about when you're in that position is some form of risk management and how you're going to mitigate bad outcomes for for your portfolio and by extension for your investors and sustainability is really not that different and both of us I think take a little bit of an issue with the ESG label which It's very much a marketing tool for the industry rather than dealing with the underlying issues, which is one of incredibly elevated risks coming from the fact that we're using too much resources on this planet and we're not prepared to deal with the problems up front. We're rather more inclined to kick it down the road. So it's not radically different, but you're away from the day-to-day buzz of seeing ticking up, ticking down. Is it good? Is it bad for me? Uh, But it's actually almost like a natural extension of what you've been doing all your life. And for us, no doubt, this is the biggest risk issue facing financial markets, households, everyone on the planet going forward.
1: It's really interesting to hear you put it that way, because on the surface, when you think about financial and risk management and, uh, for example, sustainability and the climate crisis... There doesn't, on the surface, look to be a massive amount of of common ground there, although there is a huge amount of discussion right now and dialogue in the business world about sustainability. It's not very keen, though. It's not very common, though, to see people making the direct move from financial services directly into sustainability advocacy. Do you find that you get pushback? from your peers? Or does it help that you have this understanding of the financial services world?
0: I think the big problem is everyone has a day job. And because we have a day job, we, we, we're caught in a dilemma. One part of it is we have to do the day job so that we can earn some money and keep our lives going. And the other part of it is because we're doing our day job, we have to advocate for the day job. And the reason why we left the financial services is because you can't actually talk about how fundamentally we're not recognizing the whole of our wealth is built upon a confidence that things can continue as is. And if you are within the financial services, you cannot talk about the fact that we never priced in the global financial crisis into the pricing of all, all the credits and everything else until it happened. And in the same way, we are not actually pricing in the dangers of climate change on our portfolios. And there is no way to do so. And give some practical examples. My mom has uh, shingles in her eye. She's 87. She's been really badly affected by it. And we were with the doctors on uh, earlier in the week and they gave an ointment. And I looked on the packet of the ointment it says store under 25 degrees. And you think about storing under 25 degrees, actually, you know, that's going to be a problem. Now, if that has a problem on the medicines you take, it's going to affect a lot of people's ability to work and to function. It's going to hit the confidence we have about how the economy will evolve. And what Richard and I believe is that when you actually look at it in those ways, what climate change is going to do is to bankrupt us before it even drowns us. And everybody's talking about it as, oh, it may drown us if we live on the coast. That's not the risk. The risk is we run out of money because the confidence collapses and all our portfolios disappears.
1: In just a moment, we'll return to our interview with David Koh and Richard Busolato. But first, let's hear from KPMG's Global Head of Financial Services, Judd Kaplan. Judd, we've been hearing from David and Richard about the need for the financial services world to shift from talking about sustainability into action. In your experience, is the FS sector taking the issue seriously? And how do they compare to other industries?
3: Yeah, Alice. so the answer is yes, but let me give a little bit of background to that answer. So one, uh, we think that investors expect financial services firms to embrace sustainability. That's point number one. Uh, Point number two, and this is somewhat recent, is that there's been greater disclosure required by the SEC and other regulators with standards around what is considered green, sustainable, or ESG in general. Um, I also like to take a step back to think about why companies or financial services companies may embrace ESG and sustainability. So a couple of reasons around that. One, it's simply a risk for insurance companies and banks if they do not from their own business standpoint so you think about lending or insuring to the agriculture sector and the impact of climate on that sector Uh, one you know similarly in the case of real estate and real estate next to rising sea levels and the impact of what it means to a bank's lending portfolio or insurance companies that insure that type of real estate Um, Second point around the why is companies simply can no longer hide, meaning from anything related to damaging the environment or being associated with damaging the environment. And finally, it can be an area of differentiation for financial services companies. So with that, and maybe back to your original question, we have seen a significant increase in the number of asset management and PE firms focused on sustainability. We've also seen a lot of the large traditional asset management firms acquiring excuse me, niche um, firms or funds focused on sustainability. And in addition, we've seen ESG assets at banks. When I say ESG assets, meaning assets, lending assets focused on sustainability, increased by something like a multiple of 25 in the past 10 years, which is pretty significant.
1: The last few years have really challenged all sectors, from the pandemic to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Given that we're in such a geopolitically uncertain time, how is the financial services industry holding up right now? And what's the outlook for FS in the next year or so?
3: So the answer, short answer, again, is um, ho- holding up well, but let me give you a little bit longer answer to that question. Um, it's also, I think, perhaps important to reflect on what's occurred or transpired over the last 15 years. So we all know it's hard to believe almost 15 years ago, the financial crisis, uh, then COVID two and a half, three years ago, uh, obviously, the Russian-Ukraine situation, and more recently, uh, extremely high inflation, um, inflation and gas prices like we've never seen in 40 years. Um, you know, so that that's led to the whole inflation issue in financial services. Um, th- these are my own words, and I'm just surmising and reading and and in conversations with central bankers. Um, uh, which is I think they want to put the economies in a coma <laughs> to manage inflation. Um, generally, it takes about a year, you know, relative to your time frame to manage inflation. Um, but <clears throat> but it's interesting. in some ways, it's the tale of two cities, particularly with banks. So banks actually do well in a rising interest rate environment, and I'm referring to their net interest margin, the difference between, Rates they pay in deposits and and rates they earn from lending activity, and once again in a rising interest rate environment they do better. And about or on average two thirds of banks revenue is driven from net interest margin. So that that's the good news. So when I say tail two cities, the flip side of that is or the bad news we're going to see, or we are seeing a decrease in. Lending both by businesses and consumers. I mean, just think of us as consumers, much higher mortgage rates, and not as much activity or need for, I shouldn't say need, but not as much simply as you know, activity for mortgages. Consumer spending, you know, is decreasing. And I think as we all see each and every day, the stock market continues to go down, bond portfolios go down as interest rates rise. Um, the other downside, and I think we're seeing this just in the last couple of days, which is banks charge offs and reserves for loan activity is increasing, uh, which is not always good. So that's in banking and insurance companies, rising interest rates can also be a good or a positive. And simply because insurance companies drive a lot of their revenue from the investment portfolio, which tends to be fixed income. So as rates rise, they'll see more interest income In the case of, and I'm just going around the horn in financial services, in the case of asset management, uh, maybe somewhat neutral. So there's simply a rotation from equities to fixed income and short-term cash. Um, In the case of PE, maybe not as good simply because it's not just private capital, but when private equity investments occur, it's both a combination of private equity and debt as well. And obviously, debt is increasing. Judd,
1: thank you so much for joining us on Global Perspectives. Now let's return to the second part of our interview with David Cole and Richard Bussolato. Now through Rethinking Choices, you're working towards transformational ownership. Can you tell our listeners a little about what this is And how it will support people and their communities? Well, we started
0: seriously recognising that the climate situation is out of control when we looked at the, um, you know, the IPCC report, the AR6 report, which there's been a lot of reporting about. I think one of the things which really hit us was when you looked on the chart they had of where, what happens to soil moisture uh, in the world. We knew from our background from kind of investing and kind of understanding about grains and other stuff, where these were produced along. And they actually seem that actually all of the major areas where we grow food are coming up brown and you know sandy and brown. And the in fact the only place where we grow food which is coming up green is in Western Russia, eastern Ukraine and Belarus. So you know puts the war into a different context if you look at that as you as you go on to with climate change. And the problem with climate change is that it is the total amount of all gas and coal that we use. And it's only the total that matters about it. It doesn't matter whether you actually don't use as much because what is produced, someone else will then carry on and use. So the only real way to tackle it is to limit the amount of production that you have. And we talked to a lot of people who've been talking about divesting out of Shell and all of those companies. The problem, the question is who's buying it? and are those people buying it when you sell it? Are they the ones who's going to reduce the production? And what we ended up rec- recognizing is that you actually have to create a structure, which is this transformation ownership idea, which is fundamentally a public takeover of all of our oil, gas and coal companies. So it's like Elon Musk trying to buy our Twitter. But this is a case where everybody is buying out all of the existing owners in the oil gas and coal companies and say we're going to take over it and we're going to take charge and it's going to be funded by businesses paying a fee so if you're coca-cola or apple you use the planet to make your profits you need to pay a fee to maintain it it's a bit like us using a public space or a private garden we pay a fee to maintain it and it's not just we pay a fee to make our businesses go better we actually maintain it so that everybody can share and recognizing that it it is shared in that way. When when we own it in that form, then what happens is we can then reduce the production and there will still be a lot of profits. And that money then gets distributed back to people directly. So whether you live in Yemen or in Somalia or Wyoming or in Surrey in the UK or in Hong Kong, um, everybody effectively gets a equal share on a per-person basis.
1: But like Elon Musk buying Twitter, that generates a lot of controversy, and many will listen to that proposal and say, how will it work? Is this a carbon tax? Is this reverting to political ideologies many don't agree with? Richard, how would you push back against those criticisms?
2: Well, fundamentally, I truly and utterly believe in capitalism. I'm one of these people who will walk the walk up to the cross and die there for capitalism because I believe in it. The problem with capitalism that people see when they say it doesn't work is that we've distorted a lot of the issues around capitalism. But this is actually a perfect example on capitalism working. You cannot just take assets from someone. You need to buy them at fair value, which is the market price. That's what this fund or concept will do. And when you have ownership, you take control. You are the owner and you're going to set the agenda. And the fact that energy has been too cheap for too long is not really a good reason for not doing the right thing now, which is you need to limit emissions if we're going to make any kind of effort at keeping the worst of outcomes at bay. And the only way you can do it is essentially by seizing, um, by taking control of the production of these fossil fuels.
1: And so
2: people that are arguing carbon tax and they say, look, what happens to the state-owned people that don't play ball? Well, that's a side issue because there you can actually work with the legislators and regulators and tax them. So you make sure that the overall amount we produce is going to be falling and tapering off over the next decade or two before we've made it effectively obsolete. Because when the price goes up, you will spur real innovation and you will actually ensure that you can have alternative energy coming on stream without the need for subsidies. But obviously, there is a cost to bear. It's going to be a lot more expensive to drive your car. But it's not a good argument to say it's been cheap for 40 years. Why do you make it expensive now? It was too cheap for 40 years. And now we're aligning the price with what the planet can cope with.
0: And I think it's important to add that, you know, the, the owners who are the owners, because when if you take, for example, a business like Apple makes a contribution law, the owners are the investors in Apple, are the owners of Apple, which is your pension fund, your savings fund and all those things. It makes you the owners it doesn't make elon musk the owner it makes everybody along to do so and so everyone by going along with this and proposing to the businesses that they own and say that you need to pay a fee what you're doing is providing a global mandate to say that actually we are taking back control Uh, we can't trust the governments because the uk is already allowing drilling in or for oil in surrey Uh, Existing shareholders are now predominantly interested in financial, their own financial interests. So we're just going to use the capital markets to take back control over what we feel is the thing that collectively across the world we all need to do.
1: And Richard, a final thought from you. Are you optimistic?
2: I'm always an optimist, but I'm also very much a realist. And I think it's becoming increasingly clear that the political system is unable to cope with the challenges, largely because politics is driven by one thing only, and that's the next election cycle. So in many ways, the biggest hope you have from political perspective is that you get a second term U.S. president, where a re-election is no longer uh, the major focus. Because then you can actually do the right things. Otherwise, politicians essentially end up taking policy decisions that are focused on winning the next election. So the help is not going to come from politics. And that's why we believe in capitalism as a mechanism to at least trying to address these issues. So I'm optimistic on markets realizing that your portfolios are going to face bankruptcy down the road unless you start tackling the biggest problem you have in your portfolio, which is you cannot divest, you cannot hedge, and you can't really diversify out of a global portfolio because we only live on this place called Earth. So you have to tackle the issue up front. And the only way we can tackle it is by addressing it immediately and reducing our emissions by taking control of the supply.
1: Okay, a fascinating uh, and thought-provoking discussion, gentlemen. Thank you so much. David Coe and Richard Busolato, thanks for joining us on Global Perspectives. I'm Halema Dean. Join us next month where we'll be chatting to another inspiring business leader. If you want to hear more of KPMG's global podcasts, head now to home.kpmg.